Well, happy Cinco de Mayo, everyone. I actually don't know what Cinco de Mayo is. I did not do my research on it, so if it's a terribly pagan, wicked holiday, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the only reason I know anything about it is because uh, I asked Angie to marry me on May 5th, 13 years ago. Spoiler, she said yes. And uh, I didn't have to convince her too hard, but we are, uh, we, I don't know, it's weird. We celebrate our anniversary of getting engaged, not with any flowers or anything, but uh, just to mark it. And so she was in uh, Muskoka Bible Center this morning. We had a nice little text exchange, happy Sanco de Mayo. So now I, I, I've just brought you all into that moment, and I'm sure you're <laughs> glad about it. Speaking about uh, pagan holidays, this is my first uh, May ever on Facebook. So I just found out that yesterday was Star Wars Day, which I had never heard before, and it makes sense. May the 4th be with you. Okay, it's great. So I saw all kinds of things I didn't need to see there. Uh, but all in good fun and uh, wonderful. I, I don't think either May the 4th be with you day or Cinco de Mayo are biblically inspired days. Uh, maybe we should just get back to God's calendar. Um, today, all of the joking aside and celebration of my engagement, thank you, by the way, for celebrating that with me. Uh, we have actually quite a serious text to look at. Um, and the text that we're going to look at is vitally important, especially in our witness in the world. Because, and, and I'm sure that you would have come across this maybe in your own life, maybe you're still wrestling with this personally. Uh, if not you, then someone you know, someone you love, uh, a neighbor, a co-worker, a, a family member, somebody is wrestling with this idea. I think I'm good enough. I think I'm good enough. If there is a God... And if there is a heaven, or if there is no God, but there is a heaven, this is irrational and illogical, but people think that way, I think I'm good enough to get there. Anyone experience that? Maybe in your own life, maybe someone you know, where this idea that, well, how bad could we be? Uh, yes, nobody's perfect, but... I think I am good enough that if there is a God, He will like me. And even if there isn't a God, I'm going to heaven. That's, that is popular theology out in our world. And the text we're going to look at today says, false. You're not good enough. There is a God in heaven. And if you want to earn your way into that heaven, if you want to earn your right to be raised from the dead. If you want a citizenship in the new heavens and the new earth, you have to be perfect, spotless, without sin. Here's the hard news. Every one of us sinned this week. And every one of us sinned to such a degree that we have disqualified ourselves from earning our place in God's good graces, earning our place in heaven, earning our right to be raised from the dead. You don't have to look at your whole life. Just, just look at this week. You disqualified yourself this week, and so did I. In fact, we've all disqualified ourselves this very day. So that's what we're going to look at today. This is our final sermon in that first section of the book of Romans on the wrath of God. As I've said, I think every week for a month, foundational to the gospel is this knowledge that God is righteous and wrathful. His righteousness is expressed in wrath against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness on this earth. So would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 20 verses. As you're looking for your spot, please stand.
This is the word of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much. In every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? But some people slanderously charge us with saying that condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's the word of God. Let's pray. God, th this is hard. This is a mirror for us to look into, and it's, it's not a pretty reflection that we see. When we look at ourselves in the perfect mirror, which is your word, and these verses in particular this morning, we see that we are not righteous. We are not good enough. We have fallen short. We, like all people, are under sin. Pray that you would help us to see uh, ourselves for who we really are. And I pray especially, especially for anyone here who has not yet seen himself or herself with this kind of clarity. For until we know who we are and see who we are, why would we call on you to save us? Why would we seek out a Savior? Why would we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Oh, but Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves for who we are, call on the name of Christ, and be saved. That we would receive from your bountiful grace all that we need and more. Oh, Lord, please share this, your holy word, through me, a, a very imperfect vessel, a broken vessel, a man who, like all of us, is under sin May your grace come forth from my lips. Glorify yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Build up your church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Selah and I are reading through the wind of the willows right now. And I don't know about you, but 
um, sometimes you feel like you, you understand the English language. I challenge you to pick up that children's book and read it. It's <laughs> I, have to, like, I read a page, I, I don't even know what I've said, and I have to summarize it for Selah. And sometimes when you read the Bible, it kind of feels like that, right? It's written in English, but what, what, is it, what does it say? The other thing about The Wind and the Willows is this is uh, the first book where we have really long chapters, so we're not able to get through every chapter in, in a night. And so what's really important is before we start that night's reading, I have to go back and ask her, and together we, we remember, we remind ourselves of what was very difficult to understand the night before, uh, and we say, okay, what has been going on in the wind and the willows? And so once we catch ourselves up and refresh ourselves on, on what we've read, then we're ready to read again. And such an important skill for reading the Bible. Uh, so we cannot really understand this text without under reminding ourselves of the context of where we've been, especially because this whole idea of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, that's an idea that started in Romans 1, verse 18. And now we're in Romans 3, verse 1. And so from Romans 1, 18 through to the end of chapter 2, we've been in the same idea with different nuances. So you'll remember that Romans 1, 18 through 32 was really directed at Gentiles, saying, look, no one is, has a, an acceptable excuse for worshiping idols and worshiping creation. When you look at the world that God made, you just know that there is a God who made it. And to reject the Creator is grounds for condemnation. So that's really what we looked at in, at the second half of chapter 1. That every person who has ever lived ought to have worshipped God as creator because nature and creation just requires that. It compels us not to worship creation, but to worship the creator. Now what have we all done? We've all worshipped creation instead of the creator. That comes in all kinds of forms. You can worship a statue that you've made. You can worship money. You can worship retirement savings. You can worship the, the sun or the moon or the stars or the lake or the tree. Uh, you can worship yourself. And I have just given you a, a very incomplete list of ways in which human beings worship the creation rather than the creator. In chapter 2, which we looked at last week, we went through the entire chapter, and the whole chapter is, well, okay, a Jewish person might be able to read chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and say, well, that's not me. I do not worship the creation. Now, they're self-deluded because uh, we're all kind of stuck in this creation worship. We all have all kinds of idols, and so did the Jews. You read their history, they're always struggling with idol worship, even while they worship the one true God. And yes, that problem got a little bit better after they were taken into exile and came back and the creation worship wasn't as obvious. They weren't worshiping idols the way they always had and yet they still would fall into creation worship. Nevertheless, Paul goes at them from another angle and he says, well, fine, if you want to say that you're totally innocent, you never worship creation in any way, shape, or form and you always worship God perfectly, don't you realize that you're condemned by the law? So maybe you're not condemned because of creation worship, but you will be condemned because God gave you 613 rules to follow. 613 laws, which can be summarized in 10, which, as Jesus said, can be summarized into two. Nevertheless, you've broken the law. Therefore, you will be condemned for breaking the law. You have failed to live perfectly righteous lives. If Gentiles are condemned by what we call general revelation, that is, you know, generally speaking, God has revealed himself to us in what he has made. We worship it rather than him. We're condemned. The Jews and Christians, we looked at last week, because we, we fall into this now, now that we are men and women and, and children of the book, we too have specific revelation, special revelation, that is God has especially or specifically revealed himself not only in creation but to us through the book, through the Bible. He's revealed himself in the law and in the gospel and he said this is who I am and this is what I expect of you. And so in chapter 2 we'll find out if you're, if you're a, a person of the book, the book 
condemns you. Because you failed to live up to the book. And so whether you're condemned by general revelation or by specific revelation, you're condemned. Now, in chapter 3, he picks up that idea because he, he, he's just spent a whole chapter talking about how uh, Jews are condemned by the law. And now he's going to ask the question, well, is there any advantage to being a Jew? And that's what we're going to look at today. Today's preaching text Romans 3, 1 through 20, can be divided into five groups of Q&A. Paul, Paul does for us a, a Q&A. It's as if he preached chapter 2, and then for our benefit, he just writes down what a Q&A might look like, a question and answer period with Paul. And he divides that into five sections. So the first section is Romans 3, 1 to 2. Then Romans 3, 3 to 4. Third section, Romans 3, 5 to 6. And then Romans 3, 7 to 8. So far, so good. Two, verse, two verses for each Q&A. But then the fifth question and answer period goes from verses 9 through 20. And so he, he just lays it all out. It's sort of the, after that, he just drops the mic and walks away. I have nothing more to say. And, and the whole point that Paul makes in that la fifth of five sections today is, you can't get out of this. There's, there's no wiggle room. This is it. This is the truth. There's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. This is the truth. We all stand condemned. Now, as I said, this has been delivered in, in these 20 verses in, in a Q&A format. So you have questions that Paul poses for us. He, he presupposes what might we ask of him based on what he said from Romans 1.18 to the end of chapter 2. So let's just take a look at these questions. They come in pairs. In verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Well, what is the value of circumcision? Then he answers it. Second group of questions in verse 3. So what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Group of questions number 3 in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteous, righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Group of questions number four, verse seven. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And the last group of questions, verses, verse nine, the first part, what then are we Jews any better off? So what we're going to do today is just walk through this Q&A. We're going to ask the questions. Then we're going to see how Paul answered the questions. And what you'll see is as we go through, the questions build on the answers that he has given previously until we get to the end. And, and really that last section, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He's going back to the first questions. And that's where he gives us his definitive answer to these things. So let's work through this together. Uh, in this section, Paul is wrestling with two things. Both the privilege of Jews over Gentiles. He doesn't want to deny that Jews, and now us Christians, have an advantage over Gentiles. That is, non-Jews, or now, those who, who don't ascribe to the Bible. Anyone who says that the Bible is the word of God has an advantage over everyone else. So he wants, to, he wants to affirm that, but at the same time, while he's affirming that there is a clear advantage to being a Jew, or now for us, to be Christians, to be people of the book, he also wants to show that there's an equality within humanity between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. So Greek and Gentile, that's just non-Jews. So he's divided humanity into Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. He says, on the one hand, there's an advantage to being a Jew. There's an advantage to having the law and knowing what God expects of you. On the other hand, there's no salvific advantage because that which you have discovered through the law, through the word of God, only serves to condemn you. Advantage, we know God better, dis, uh, or equality with everyone else, we're equally condemned. That's, that's what he wants to accomplish here. 
Let's take a look at these five sections. First section, first questions. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Remember chapter 2. He's just said that uh, Jews are no better off than Gentiles who are condemned. Is there any advantage? Verse 2, he answers it. Oh, of course. There's much in every way. Great advantages to being a Jew. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Scripture. How could anyone say that it is not better to know God through the Bible than to know Him only through creation? It is better. There's an advantage. So if if we're not thinking about our own self-interest for a minute, if we're not just thinking about what do I need to do for my own gain, if you're just thinking, is it better for a creature to know specific things revealed by the Creator through the written Word of God than to not have the written Word of God? What Paul wants us to answer is it is better. It is better to know God through the written Word than to know Him through creation. So let us not then say, oh, well, we are worse off because we now know all the many ways that we are condemned. Rather, be glad that you know God at all and know Him specifically. God has spoken and He has revealed Himself to us. If you want to know God, the Bible is where to get to know Him. And so that's where he starts. There's a great advantage to being in possession of the book. But that leads us to the next set of questions in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? What does Paul mean? Some were unfaithful. By some, he means all. He's just rhetorical. What if some slash all? What if, what if some, who? Who is unfaithful? The people to whom God revealed himself. So God very vulnerably said, this is who I am. And this is what I expect from you. So without undermining the advantage that it is to know God in that way, he says, so what if some, slash all, were unfaithful? There were, the Jews failed to live up to God's standard. They, they failed to keep covenant with God. Second question, does their faithlessness nullify or cancel the faithfulness of God? This is a profound question. God very vulnerably reveals himself, says this is who I am, this is what I expect from you, and this is what I'll do for you. Now, some all were unfaithful. What should we expect of God then? Should he be unfaithful just as his people were unfaithful? No. It's impossible for God to be faithless. Now, here's where it gets tricky. When we think about the faithfulness of God, what do we think of? He is faithful and righteous to forgive. Is that what Paul means here? The some who were unfaithful were those who broke covenant with God. If there were some Jews who were unfaithful to the covenant, should we expect God to be unfaithful to the covenant? No. But what does that mean well, this is the covenant. If you read Deuteronomy 28, what, is, what does God say in Deuteronomy 28? If you keep covenant with me, I will bless you. And then he lists out all the specific blessings. But if you break covenant with me, I will curse you. And then there's three times as many curses as there are blessings in Deuteronomy 28. And he repeats himself, or I guess that is the repetition. He had originally given this blessings and curses in Leviticus. So what does it mean for God to be faithful to his covenant? 
It means that he will bless those who he's in covenant with if they keep covenant with him. But for God to remain faithful to his covenant, he must curse those who break covenant with him. Do you know what the climactic curse is in Deuteronomy 28? So there's all these curses, and and just as a, a small aside, why are there three times as many curses as there are blessings? Well, it's just as a parent, if you count to three or you count to ten, which is the most gracious? If I count to three and you're still disobeying me, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be discipline, or I'm going to count to ten, and if you are still doing that, then there's going to be trouble. The, the, the counting to ten is actually more gracious, it's more patient, it's more merciful, it's in the best interest of the child to give seven additional digits that you can count. So it is with the covenant. There's three times as many curses because God's being patient. And as these minor curses fall on the people, they they serve as warnings. If you keep going, if you don't repent, we're eventually going to get to the end of the line. What is the end of the line for the curses? Death and exile. Exile. God brought his people graciously into the land, and if they don't keep covenant with him, or let me first start this way, if he, they keep covenant with him, they will keep the land. But if they don't keep covenant with him, eventually he's going to boot them out of the land. And we know that that happened in 586 B.C. because they didn't repent. They just kept sinning and worshiping the creation. Sinning, worshiping the creation, making fall, uh, allegiances and, and, and uh, treaties with foreign nations, not trusting in God, but trusting in chariots and horses and so on and so forth. So eventually God kicked them out from the land. Now why is exile the ultimate curse? Because there's some pretty awful things sooner than that. I'll give you a couple examples. Cannibalism of your own children while under siege is a curse in Deuteronomy 28. Don't you think that should be the climactic curse? That's as as bad as it gets, right? No. The worst, the ultimate curse is exile. Why? Because that alone is a picture of hell. What is hell? Hell is exile from God. And that's what we've been talking about in in these first three chapters. What is it that God pours his wrath out? What does it mean when when he says that I will uh, uh, reveal my wrath from heaven? It means that he will step back from his people and they will go into exile without him. And hell is that place where God is not there. I know there's a psalm that says, where can I go, or or, or it's in uh, Romans, where can I go where you're not? It's true that God sustains that place also, but none of his goodness, none of his grace, none of his mercy, none none of his, his loving presence is there. Hell is the final exile from which there is no return. So for God to be faithful to the old covenant and for God to be faithful to the new covenant is if you break covenant with God, you will be exiled. In the old covenant, that means you're booted out of, out of Israel. You're going to go to Babylon. What does it mean in the new covenant? If you do not enter into the new covenant with God, it means you will go to hell. You will be exiled from God forever. And I just don't know how to say that in a way that doesn't offend our ears. And that is God being faithful. Because he is faithful to the covenant, both the old and the new. These are the terms that God has given to us. He will be faithful to them. So what if some were unfaithful to the covenant? Do we expect God not to be faithful? What is Paul asking there? Do we expect God not to judge? Do we expect God not to condemn? Do we expect God not to reveal his wrath from heaven? No, because it's written in the very context of the covenant. It is in the covenant. It is the covenant. Blessings and curses. And you know, we'll get there, but let me just, a little gospel aside even now, Even in the New Covenant, there are uh, blessings and curses. In the book of Galatians, 
Christ became a curse for us that we might receive the promised inheritance as children of Abraham. What well, Translation, in, in the New Covenant, how do we keep covenant with God? It's through Jesus Christ. He takes on the curse so that we can receive the blessings. But there are still blessings and curses. And the blessings are the promised land in the Old Covenant, which is a little, little country the size of New Jersey in the Middle East on the Mediterranean. In the New Covenant, it's the whole universe made new and glorified. The curses in the Old Covenant, you're going to be removed from the land. The curse in the New Covenant so that was the curse for the Old Covenant. The curse in the New Covenant is eternal exile from God. And we should not expect God not to be faithful to these covenants. Moving on. Third group of questions In verse 5, well, I guess I, I need to back up and just explain verse 4. So I've answered the question. Paul also answered it. He says, by no means, meaning we should expect God to be faithful to the covenant. He will be. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. By no means. God will be faithful to the covenant. He will give blessings to those who keep covenant. He will give curses to those who break covenant. In the new covenant, Christ takes the curses, but everyone who enters into the new covenant through the blood of Christ gets the blessings, but those who don't even enter into the new covenant receive the curses. Okay? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God shows his righteousness. God shows his character, his truthfulness, by being faithful to the blessings and the curses of the covenant. That proves that God is not a liar. God said he would bless some and curse some. And God's going to be proved true. God doesn't lie. So don't expect him to change the terms of the covenant just because you failed to keep it. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. And then he quotes, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is going back to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, this is the psalm that, that David wrote after he had committed adultery and murder. And after he's found out by Nathan the prophet, he repents and he writes Psalm 51. And in there he says, against you, God, I have sinned. Against you and you alone. And then he says these words. Well, let me just read it for you from the psalm. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not as though he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, but he says, ultimately, the sin is against you so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David saying there? This is a, this is a confession. This is really instructive for what it means to confess. He's, David is saying, you're right, I am guilty, and you would be right to kill me. You would be right to condemn me. You would be right to take away my kingship. You would be right to exile me. Then he goes on in the psalm to plead for mercy, grace, and forgiveness. But before he gets there, he says, God, you would be right. I knew the terms of the covenant. I broke covenant. I transgressed against you. Therefore, you are right to judge me. And as Christians, that has to be our heartbeat. We can never begin to take for granted the mercy and grace of God poured out for us on the cross of Christ. God would be right to end our lives and to condemn us. It is actually unjust, unfair that Jesus died for us. 
that he became a curse for us, that he takes the curse and we get the blessing. So Paul says, don't ever forget that God is right to judge. He is justified when he judged. Implicit there also is this idea that God is glorified when he judges, that that God magnifies himself as the righteous judge when he judges sinners. And so it is for God's glory and for God's good that he judged sinners, that he has proved true, that he has proved not to be a liar, that he has proved to be righteous. And when he condemns sinners, he is glorified in those ways. And that leads us to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? When we sin, when we are unrighteous, God is given an opportunity to showcase His righteousness. You see the logic there? If I sin and I am drawn before the judgment seat of God and He condemns me, He's glorified. So I've just done Him a favor. I've given him an opportunity to magnify his glory, to showcase his righteousness, to prove to the universe that he is righteous and I am not. So, is it wrong for God to inflict wrath on me since I've just done him this great favor? That's, see how the devil will whisper such things into our ears and say, oh, I'm going to sin more that grace may abound more. I'm going to give God more opportunity to to pour out His lavish mercy and grace on me. Or, in the context here, I'm going to sin, and even though I'm condemned, I'm doing God a great favor because I'm giving Him an opportunity to condemn me. And in condemning me, He gets to showcase His righteousness. Therefore, rather than inflicting His wrath on me, He ought to be thanking me. Is that good logic? That's the question. What does Paul answer? Well, first of all, he says, I speak in a human way. I'm going to come back to that. Let's answer the question, and then if I forget to come back to it, somebody shout out. That'll be interesting. Yeah. What does it mean, I speak in a human way? But first of all, his answer, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? See, we can't put God in a catch-22 situation like that. We can't say, well, how could God glorifies himself and proves that he's not a liar, that he's faithful to the covenant by judging sinners, by judging people who have broken the covenant. But if we say that we're doing God a great favor by breaking covenant so that he can showcase his righteousness in pouring out his wrath through cursing us by condemnation, we say what happens then is then God doesn't have the opportunity to actually do that very thing which glorifies him. So we cannot say that God ought not judge us. God must judge us if we have sinned. And we cannot say that he should thank us. Because God is who God is. He's perfect, holy, and righteous. And he will judge the world. So we cannot twist this and say that we're giving God a great opportunity by sinning. What does it mean? I should have just gone on to see if anyone would shout out. Well, let's just, let's just move forward. Verse 7. You got, yes, okay, somebody shouted out. Thank you. Oh, man. By no means. Good. So somebody shouted out. What does it mean that when Paul says in the uh, parentheses there, I speak in a human way? He's talking about that could we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? The human speech there is the inflicting of wrath, inflicting wrath. Why does he say, I speak in a human way? We, we do it this way too. We say God poured out his wrath on the cross or uh, hell is that place where God will, will pour out his wrath. I speak in a human way. Why? Because what, what that conjures up, doesn't it, is God adding something negative to us, something punitive. He's, he's actually going to punish us in some way where He does something to us. 
He's inflicting us. He's pouring something onto us. He's twisting our arm or something. He's, he's setting a fire or something like that, right? He's doing something. But in fact, what we've talked about with wrath is it's the exact opposite. What is it, what is it when God inflicts his wrath or pours out his wrath? It's God removing his goodness. It's God stepping back. God's not actually doing anything except removing himself, removing his grace, removing his goodness so that we become who we really are. The, the true self emerges in all of its depravity. You see, right now, every person alive is still receiving the common grace of God so that even unsaved people are not nearly as wicked and evil as they could be. Even Paul Bernardo, and we all know how evil and wicked Paul Bernardo is, is still receiving a measure of grace from God. He is not yet as wicked as he really is. And the same is true for you and me. So what would happen if we all became as bad and worse than Paul Bernardo? Have you reckoned with that reality about yourself yet? That apart from the grace of God, we're totally depraved. So God inflicts his wrath on us not by doing anything, but by not doing anything. By not arresting our sin nature. That's the wrath of God, and that's hell. A bunch of people in a place without any intervention from the good and righteous God. Moving on to our fourth set of questions. Verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? This is exactly the same as uh, the questions in section 3, verses 5 through 6. When, when I lie, when I break covenant, when I sin... God's truth abounds, God's glory, God's righteousness abounds, right? So God is given an opportunity to show the contrast between us and him. So then why would he condemn me? I am doing God this great good service. We've gone through this. And Paul says, look, some people are slanderously charging us with saying this, and their condemnation is just, that's not what I'm saying. So verses 7 and 8 are really a repeat of verses 5 and 6. Which brings us to our last Q&A in verses 9 uh, through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And here, so he answered the question one way in verse 1. He's going to answer it the opposite way in verse 9. And this goes back to, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes. You've got the oracles of God. You've gotten to know God in a way that you couldn't have known him otherwise. That's his first answer. Now he asks the same question again. He says, no. You are no better off. So though you're better off in knowing God better, you're not better off with regard to salvation. Because those oracles, that law, has just proven your guilt before a good, righteous, and holy God. Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, all human beings are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I don't know 
how people come up with a seeker-sensitive model for the church, for evangelism. No one will seek God, let alone choose Him. Our depravity is too great. It's a, it's a gracious act of God. Uh, 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 the initiative is all His to take us from being dead in our trespasses and sin to being alive in Christ. We are as dead as Lazarus in the tomb. We're not seeking Him. We are dead. And so when you're sharing the gospel with the people you love, don't expect them to, to want what you have. It's only by God's grace that they'll ever be woken up to, made alive to, drawn to, able to understand and finally seek God. That's an act of God's grace. And so our evangelism, as much as we bring God to people, we need to bring people to God. Oh God, have mercy. This one is not seeking you. Help them to seek you. Because all have turned aside. Together we've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And, and can unsaved people do anything that's good? Sure. But it's not good in the deepest sense of the word because something that is good is something that is done to the glory of God. It's an act of worship in response to the goodness that he has poured out in your life. And no one does that in their own strength. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Why, why all this focus on the words? Because if you want to know the, the, the condition of a person, seek their words because out from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know the depth of the corruption uh, and depravity of our sinfulness? It, it is exhibited by our words. And our words betray a rotten heart, a rotten, dead, darkened heart. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, I cannot get over it. I share the gospel mostly by preaching, but even in, in, in relationships, and I cannot believe how, lack, how little fear there is. If anyone truly knew what the depth of the curse to come for breaking covenant with God truly is, they would tremble with fear. People approach death without any fear of what's on the other side. But it's a fearful thing on the other side if you're not in Christ. You don't you don't fade away into oblivion. You, you live forever with the depth of your own depravity with other people who are equally depraved, isolated, murderous. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What then? Are any Jews any better off? Yes, with regard to knowing God. No, with regard to salvation. Because the law condemns. No fallen human being will be justified by keeping the law. For by the works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since it is through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. What's the advantage of the law? If the law just shows us how wretched we are, why read it? Why treasure it? Because it's the law that drives us to Christ. It's the law that drives us to Christ. No one is righteous. No, not one. I see that there is a creator, but I can't help worshiping the creation. I see the creator's expectation for me, and I see how far I fall short. Oh, God, have mercy. It's my only hope. My only hope is that this creator who gave me this law is also a God of grace and mercy. Otherwise, there's no hope. 
There's no hope. But the law drives us to Christ. And so anyone who says, oh God, you're right to judge me. You're right to condemn me. You are right to send me to hell forever and ever. Not, not shaking our fist at him, saying, what kind of a God are you and what kind of a system is this? But if we actually say, oh God, you're right to do that. But would you have mercy? Then God opens up the gospel and says, look to the cross. I've sent forth my son to be made a curse so that you might receive all the blessings and become a child. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against Gentiles who worship creation rather than the creator, against Jews who have the oracles of God, who were in covenant with God, who knew God's righteous laws and decrees and broke them. In all people since Adam, both Jews and non-Jews, are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. The advantage of the Jew had become a disadvantage except for this. The law that entrusted to Israel drove many to Christ. God has found another way, and that's exactly what we worship God for. Though we stand condemned, he condemned Jesus Christ in our place. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to see our, the depth of our need. Uh, we, we've been faithless, and you will be faithful, and you will glorify yourself by condemning sinners. But thank you that you're a God of love and grace and that you condemn us in Christ. That our sin has been punished. Our sin has been paid for. Your son became a curse under the covenant so that we might receive all the blessings from your hand. We praise you and we worship you. Amen.